better than the booze? Drink the apple juice. Your doctor will thank you. But in the meantime, we're back on a podcast and it's recording. So, hey, welcome back, everyone. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we're going to remind you yet again that we are the guys that put fun in dysfunction, and we're going to dive right in. We've got the legendary game designer, Mr. James M. Ward here. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and readers and viewers? Hi, I'm James M. Ward. I'm not legendary, and uh, I've been a, uh, a game designer and novelist since uh, '74. So it's been a few minutes. Yes, I'm I'm as old as stone. <laughs> so the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So uh, I actually first found him when we were on a Twitch stream together. The sci-fi writers playing old school D and D. They couldn't have come up with a less tongue twistery name. But uh, And then we were paired up to write a novel together, and as we've gotten to know each other, I think he's a stellar dude. He's a lot of fun to talk to, so I knew when this Giant Lands thing came out, we had to, we had the perfect excuse to have you on the show. Oh, it but, sounds uh, good to me. Thank you, you very much. Your nerd pedigree goes way farther back than mine, Doc. So, so how did you first hear of the legend himself? Oh. oh, I actually grew up with copies of some of his D&D manuals in my house. So there's that. And um, uh, most famously, the deities and demigods. And uh, my bro- we still have them. I think my brother has hidden them so that they don't accidentally get acquired by another sibling. We're not territorial gamers at all. <laughs> and uh but also i did a guest spot with the sci-fi uh old, whatever that long long name is and james was wonderful and he ran it and he put up with my jokingly calling him santa because it was christmas time and, <laughs> and yeah great but uh i am obnoxious and it's okay to want to roll a d20 and smash me in the head uh-huh so you actually gamed with some of his friends, though. The guy that did the, uh, what was it, um, Buck Rogers. Yes, I did do some gaming with some of, so, so it does turn out I know a lot of, this, we know a lot of the same people. Jody Lennon, who we've had on a guest uh, on the show, he's known her for years as well. Um, I, we did a podcast thing on Conda Couch with uh, Flint Dilly and Jay Parker, who are familiar with them, too. So we had a lot of people in common, so it seemed very logical when we had an excuse to bring you on, to bring you on for some fun. All right. Sounds good to me. When does the fun start? I don't know. When we get rid of JR? (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Yeah, right. I feel the love. So that's how she shows her love. She abuses me, but it's okay. I like it. Uh All right, Doc. You keep coming back for more. I know I must need help. I got to see a doctor about that sometime soon. But in the meantime, you got to ask him the religion questions, but we know he gets to stay. Yes, we do know he gets to say. So Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Firefly every single time. Okay, why? Well, I designed product for Firefly. (laughs) I I really love the story background. I was ready to do a ton more product, but they canceled the show on me. But the movie was pretty good. And uh, I just just like the environment of the Firefly. And Josh Whedon, of course, is amazing. So Firefly. So the good news is that there's a group of people campaigning to try to see it. So they prodded him about the whole Twitter thing, Elon Musk. So now they're hoping they can prod him to like get season two of Firefly. 
Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, that'd be great. It'd be nice. I mean, it'd be a good thing for for the country. He'd be a true American hero if he did that. Probably all the actors and actresses are fat though now. I I yeah, don't I imagine how you would how yeah. you reboot like that you, Please, dear God, if anybody's thinking of actually doing this, here's me. Don't reboot it. Just continue on the storyline. Like the yeah, kids in the ship or yeah. something. I'm really tired of all the Spider-Mans that they have done over and over and over again. So I agree with you 100%. Yeah, I like continuing the storyline, particularly, you might as well continue the storyline because it's just, it's so iconic. You're not yeah. going to get anybody else to play Captain Mal right. Yeah, you know? probably. I you, quite could have him, you could have him come back, like teaching his kids the rope or something. That could I work. know, that, that's, that would be continuing the storyline. Yeah. So did any of the product that you made for for the Firefly universe could that make a movie material? Oh, for, well, any adventure can make movie material, I think, because they're just like scripts. They're exactly like scripts. And uh, I did a, a long adventure and uh, and had a great fun doing it and helped a little bit with the uh, the original role playing game. Cool. All right. So now on to the fantasy. Uh-huh. Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or the Wheel of Time. Okay, interesting story there. Uh-oh. I was forced against my will to read all of the Wheel of Time books in a month. How in a month? In a month, yes, I know. How do you do that? It's a great question. We we were uh, putting together a card game at uh, Precedence Publishing down in Arizona, and uh, I was helping with the art. So I, I didn't like the stories at all. Not at all. <laughs> Game of Thrones doesn't do much for me, but Lord of the Rings, oh my goodness. I've read the books a million times and watched the movies a million times. It's really very good. And, and I'm a great admirer of, of Tolkien. He was, he, as a philologist, he was pretty amazing. Okay. <laughs> you, are, Jay, are you okay? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've, I like Lord of the Rings. I'm not a Game of Thrones fan because it's too grimdark. Plus, I don't like to read series I know will never get finished. Um, I kind of like to have an ending. Like, I would probably go bananas if I started it. And I'm like, wait, I'm never going to get to know how this ends. So just on principle uh, on that one, I'm going to pass until he finishes it. Which means I also can't watch the show because I can never watch the show of a series that's based on a book if I haven't read the books first. It's like a rule for me. Which means I I had I had to do a miniatures game on Game of Thrones, and I had to read all those books in like two and a half weeks. That was kind oh of goodness. difficult. I know. I know. How do you keep everyone straight? That sounds painful. Well, you know, he kills off almost everybody, so it isn't hard keeping him straight at all. So, so did you have Spoiler to learn, alert. Did you have to learn to speed read then to do all that? Oh, I taught speed reading in high school. I'm a teacher. And... Uh, and I can get up to pretty high. I can get about 300 words a minute now. How do you? But can you comprehend it, like to remember it? Or I get 80% reading? comprehension, so that's pretty good. Holy garbage. I yeah. can't do that. I have 100% retention, but I can't speed read. Oh, okay. It's, yeah. We had this real cool machine that would, uh, that, that would take a line of text and go at a certain speed. So you could read it, and you could dial it from fifty words a minute to six hundred words a minute, and uh, and I taught that in high school, and it was great fun, and I learned to train my eye so I can really zip along the page. That is amazing. I did not know that about you. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very old, so I've done lots of weird things. That's fine. JR loves history. He'll grill you for hours about your life. <laughs> oh, great. Well, just, he's destined to be disappointed then. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, you're not okay. supposed to call them old to their face. Yeah, you there call we go. Them old. You're old, JR. There we go. <laughs> all right, the next question, Doc. It's a new one, so. So of all the RPGs out there, which one aside which one is your favorite that you haven't written? Yeah, okay. This is so unfair a question. I didn't write it, Jared did. Yeah, I know he did, the <laughs> bad dude. Because I've written a zillion role playing game systems myself. But uh I'm I'm just a huge fan of of one E A D and D the original that, that Zeb Cook set up. It was just wonderful. Well, I mean it started it all. Right? Yeah, well, no, D and D started it all. But uh <laughs> But anyway, the AD&D, the first edition, I really liked a lot. And I like it because I don't have to read the rules anymore. I, you know, I know, <laughs> I know I've got all the rules memorized so I can do the whole thing without touching a book, which I really like. So what was before D&D? Wasn't it like some sort of wargaming thing that you guys were doing before that? Oh, great question there, buddy. Um, Chainmail came out by Gary and Jeff Perrin. Chainmail was a set of fantasy miniatures rules. And uh, and Gary said, "Wouldn't it be fun if we tossed in some?" It was it was Middle Ages fantasy miniatures rules. And Gary said, "Wouldn't it be fun if we tossed in some fantasy creatures?" And and that's what they did. So Chainmail uh, came first, and then D and D came next. Now, were you involved with it at the Chainmail level, or did you come in later? I came in at the D and D level. D and D came out in 1974, and that's when I met Gary. Nice. All right. Yeah, it was good getting it on the ground floor. So it, it you couldn't have done pay. it better if you tried. Yeah, it helped pay for many things. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been a huge adventure. Yeah, really. <laughs> so, which one's your first love, though? Sci-fi or fantasy? Because I mean, mostly your is your background mostly in fantasy. No, <laughs> no, I, I. I, I wrote the first science fiction role-playing game. Sweet. And I wrote the first apocalyptic role-playing game. So I've done, I've done like exactly half of science fiction and half of fantasy. So which one's your favorite? Oh, I don't have a favorite for okay, sure. Which, which one did you like first? Well, that's a mean question to ask. Yeah, you have to know. Yeah, I have to say science fiction because I did Metamorphosis Alpha in 1974. And uh, that was the first um, science fiction role-playing game. So is there anything that you wrote into that game that you thought purely, like, this is all made up, it's just good fun, and then has come true? <laughs> Actually, lots and lots of the weapons I just made up out of my head, and they've all come true. A bunch of the mutations that the mutational powers have appeared in people. Um, I did a thing called a black ray gun, which it was a ray that uh, – that when it touched flesh, you died, and and Tesla beat me to it. He he made a black ray gun in 1917. Oh, damn! Okay. Yeah, I know. So, but I didn't know that until much later when I studied up on Tesla. He was a pretty cool dude. He got robbed a lot from his uh, credit for his ideas in in his life. Oh, he really did. Yeah, he the really whole did. Edison plus, thing. Plus, the government grabbed uh, all his stuff when he died, and in suspicious circumstances. Now that's a game waiting to be told. 
It really uh, is. I actually did. Uh, I, I threw. Um, oh, what is the name of that miniatures company? Fat Dragon Games did a Tesla miniatures game that I wrote, and I wrote oh, yeah. a st- short story for for it. And uh, it it's just amazing stuff. It's kind of steampunk genre, but uh, with with a different power system because Tesla wanted you know um, power floating through the air to be grabbed. So that was his big deal. So we need to get the uh, the James M. Ward historian to track down like all the things you have written over the years. So that people <laughs> that want to like try the various levels of James, like Wait, from I the various that eras, they are. It'd be I'm really hard to do. It'd be really, the, really hard to do. Some of that stuff has gone out of print, though. Yeah, so it's, it, it yep. gets weird. Or companies have folded. So who owns yes. the rights is up in the air. Yes, exactly. If you did this, the lawyers would be the ones who win because they. Okay, yeah. All the yeah, isn't that true? Yes. So, so, what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction as a genre? Was it playing games with Gary? Was it reading books? Oh, okay, this is, this is my favorite story to tell. All right. The time is 1974. I just graduated from college with a history and English degree. And I go to my favorite bookstore every Tuesday to collect the new fantasy and science fiction books that the bookstore has gotten in that day. So I'm over there, and I'm grabbing books off the shelf, and I'm grabbing Elspreg to Camp Conan books. I'm grabbing Andrea Norton books. I'm grabbing Roger Zelazny books. And when I get to the end of the row, I have seven books in my hand. And I look over there, and, and this kind of biker dude has the exact seven books in his hand. So we, we kind of laughed about that. We started talking. And this guy was in a blue jean jacket. He had ripped jeans. He had one of those weird wallets that has a chain dangling out of his pocket. And he just he just looked to me like a motorcycle, like a hell's angel kind of guy. And he said that he had a game where I could play Conan the Barbarian and fight Set. And I was hooked like a fish. <laughs> so I went over to his house and played on his patio, and that was Gary Gygax, and he taught me how to play in 1974. That's, That's funny because everybody I know that talks to him makes him sound like the the st- uh, sort of serious uh, religious scholar that he was. So he oh, yeah. dressed as a uh, biker in the early days. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, he was really a rough looking character, I have to tell you, but. Uh... But he could, he could, he could get dressed and look good if he wanted to. <laughs> so, how did your love of speculative fiction? Uh, excuse me. What is it you love about speculative fiction as a genre? Is there any one thing about it that that grabs you? Oh, I really like the idea of, I, I like the idea of going in the future and having all this happen. You know, like the, like the, like the all the stuff in Star Trek and Star Wars. I mean, I want a force sword. I think that would be wonderful. You know, I, I want, I want to travel to Mars. I, when I was in high school, I always wanted to be an astronaut and go to Mars. That never happened, of course. And uh, and so, uh, just the idea of of the 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 thinking about what's going to happen in the near future and the far future, I just find that fascinating. So if before your life is over, Elon Musk manages to put a colony on Mars and they say it's probably a one-way trip, but you could live on Mars, would you take the chance? You know, I have to tell you, I think there's already a colony on Mars. Uh-oh, go on. <laughs> exactly. I just, I love reading the YouTube um, 
uh, the YouTube uh, crazy people who say the moon is hollow and filled with aliens and Mars, we've been on Mars for three years. So I think it's all <laughs> fascinating stuff that I love to read because, again, it's like science fiction. You know, who knows if it's true? Who knows if it isn't? But uh, I love the moon stuff. It's just particularly fascinating to me. The fact that the craters are all the same depth. The fact that they exploded a bomb on the moon and, and the whole planet rang like a bell for five hours. I just think that's fascinating stuff. The fact that there's ancient Egyptian writings that talk about the moon arriving. So did not know that, but you're yeah, I know. Sort of it's all matter expert on, on Egypt. So yeah, it's all weird stuff that I just find fascinating. I just like to speculate. So how did your love of speculative fiction writ large translate into you writing stories in this space? Because you've written several novels. Oh, yeah, several novels. Lots of lots of science fiction games. Um, I just, it, it pretty much is a direct transfer. I see these great ideas. And, uh, you know, I, I speculate further on the ideas. So like in Gamma World, I, I decided that's the first apocalyptic role-playing game. I decided that the earth was going to be trashed. So I tossed a meteor at it. I did a plague. I did an atomic war. I did aliens coming and doing bad things to us. And you lived in what was left. And so, again, you have to, you have to speculate on things like mutations. I have mutations so that if you, if you fool around accidentally with radiation in Gamma World, your body mutates. And, and you get physical and mental mutations. And so I had to think about what those would be. And that was really easy because there's just so much information about paranormal things out there on the web that you can get a hold of that it was easy for me to make mutations and, and make what, what, I mean, what would survive after a, a horrible thing like meteors hitting? So like submarines would bring people in. There's, I'm sure there's hidden bases um, that, that have soldiers in. So there'd be some people coming out, but then there'd be also weird things like robots coming out or androids coming out. We're like this close to having um, androids happening, and we have human-looking robots all over Japan right now. So that, that's just happening. So it's, it's fun to extrapolate and, and wonder what the next step is. All right. So transitioning from there into games, because you're not just an author, you also are the legendary RPG designer. I only say that because it bugs you so much. It does. It does. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel legendary at all. But how did your love of sci-fi and fantasy translate into you writing uh, the games? Like you started as just a, a player in in Gary's in Gary's game. game. How did it become? Well, now yeah. you're writing your own content. Well, that's fair. That's another inch. I hope it's an interesting story. We'll find out. Maybe you'll edit it out. We'll see. But uh, I'm at Gary's house, and I'm I, every every Saturday I'm playing on his porch, and we're playing D and D, and I just love the game. It's just so much fun. And uh, and so one day in the summer, I said to Gary, Gary, you know, this fantasy is really great stuff, but you absolutely have to do a science fiction game. And he looks at me and. He didn't know if I could write. He didn't know if I had any talent. And he said, Jim, you know, I don't have time to do that right now, but why don't you give it a try? Well, my mama didn't born any idiots, I'll tell you. So I said, okay, you betcha. So all that summer and, and most of the next uh, fall, I worked on Metamorphosis Alpha and turning it from and it was it, it couldn't be D and D. I couldn't use the same rules, 
So I had to use different rules for copyright reasons, and and I turned my sci love of science fiction into a game that was kind of like D&D, but it wasn't the exact same game. So when you were doing those game sessions with Gary, was it like a Mountain Dew and Pizza Fest, or like what were you guys uh, sur surviving on uh, coffee or what? <laughs> well, that's a fair question. Um, we all brought our own drinks. Um, he, he had three uh, lovely daughters and a lovely wife, and at every session, they'd pull out some stuff for us to eat. Our favorite was crackers with peanut butter and honey on top. We ate oh, a ton of those. <laughs> and every once in a while, if any of us had money, we'd buy a next-door pub pizza, and we'd eat that during the game. Okay. Is that company still around, the pizza place? The next-door pub pizza? Yes, it makes the best pizza in the world. All right, so if we ever do the pilgrimage, Doc, we'll have to give it a shot. You absolutely have to. So, and and when Gary Khan comes, Gary Khan is a is a convention to celebrate Gary's uh, life and death. Um, in March, it's, it happens every March in Lake Geneva, and the next Gary Khan, you guys will have to come and enjoy yourselves. And I'll take you over to the next door pub, and I'll treat for the pizza. Oh, right. thank you. You heard it here. <laughs> so, here's my question, though: uh -huh. What was your drink of choice when gaming? Oh, I did Coke, but I can't do Coke or Diet Coke now. I'm a diabetic, and so I can't do a lot of things if I want to survive. But in those days, in those days, it was three or four cans of Coke during the session. Okay. So. When you were talking about given the era you were recording, when you said Coke the first time, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you specified cans. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was the liquid variety. You had to okay. go there, didn't you, Jay? Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty straight-laced. They used to call me Straight Arrow when I was a teacher at school. Nothing wrong with that. I'm just giving you grief. And that <laughs> work with JR. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, you would think if anything was going to drive him to drink, and I would have, but... <laughs> you know, maybe you have, and he just won't admit it to you. Exactly right, yes. Possible, I've, possible. I've, <laughs> I've cried myself to sleep several times after JR session. <laughs> All right, Doc, move this along before I start. Okay, so do you have any real-life formidable experiences that have influenced you as either a storyteller or a game designer? Real-life experiences. Hmm, okay. So I, I'm not a spelunker, but I like going in in caves. So Cave of the Mounds, Carlsbad Caverns. Mammoth caves, you know, those are all nice caves with light systems and walkways, and nothing is really tight and nasty. So I, I enjoy caves a lot. Um, I do I do lots of research on castles because I'm using castles in my games all the time. So I, I like getting maps of castles and and uh, studying what they did to to defend their walls and things. So I enjoy that. So. Um, some real life experiences, you know, that's kind of tough. Um, I think teaching 35 kids who don't want to be there is a lot like managing, you know, a whole cave full of orcs. <laughs> so, so there's some, there's some stuff there. Um, but I, 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 I've led kind of a quiet, calm life. So I have to say, I haven't done anything really adventuresome. So when you were teaching, did they did they know that you were the man, the myth, the legend? Like did they uh, realize you were making that stuff? Yes, they, they. We didn't have Facebook in those days, but they 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 saw stuff in the stores and and connected my name to them. How did that go over? 
I, I had to like quiet them down quite a bit. <laughs> they pretty much couldn't believe that I was an author and a game designer. That was I was Mr. Ward, the teacher, and and I, I was know, actually kind of stern. You know, everyone that was in your classes back then is like telling everyone now that you're famous. They're like, I knew him. <laughs> yeah, right. He gave I knew me a him. DNA paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, Doc, it's your favorite set of questions. I don't know. I you're know the fandom ones. So have you had any cool fan art or cosplay of either a character or creation that you've had made? Okay, that is a terrific question, by the way. Thank you. Um, uh, TSR set up a club called the Role Playing Game Association. And, and I said to the club members, hey, you guys should have uh, – a story and an adventure every Gen Con. Gen Con was a convention that happened every August, and it's it's a huge deal now. It gets like 70,000 Yeah, people. I think it's in the summer now, though, isn't it? Like July, maybe? They keep changing the date, so yeah, I, I don't know for sure. But anyway, I said, we need an adventure, and they said, okay, help us set it up. So I set up a thing called The Living City. And in The Living City, you played the adventure one year, and all of the characters and all of the equipment that you won in that tournament you got to use in the second and third and fourth and fifth year of the convention oh, so nice. it got very popular and caught on really well and i got to be mayor henry o'kane in the cosplay um night at the living city and we would everybody would come and dress up as, as their characters from from the tournaments and they'd come in, and we'd have a fun role-playing experience um, in a great big um, ballroom hall. And uh, and I got to be the mayor of the city. That was lots of fun. I was dressed up in a swordsman uniform and, and uh, looked pretty natty, if I do say so myself. That's really awesome. I, it was sounds... awesome. I really miss the RPGA. It's too bad that they discontinued it. Well, who knows? Maybe somebody will be bold and try and recreate something similar and yeah wouldn't that be cool i'd love to do another living city as a game product that'd be fun so have you um had anybody ask for your autograph <laughs> no that's like a loaded question isn't it at, at gary con i had 230 people ask for my autograph my, my, my son brett counted them as they asked <laughs> it was pretty funny i had one guy bring 35 things for me to sign Holy, Holy Jesus. I know, I know. It took me forever. <laughs> I, I so, imagine yeah. your poor arms were like on fire at the end of the yeah, night. I know. I, I have, I've given out lots of autographs over the years. We have that Deities and Demigods book that you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, that That's a very controversial product at TSR. And oh. so the, the, the original that has the Celtic, no, that has the Melnibonean and Cthulhu um, mythoses in there. Um, usually sells for about two grand. And so Do you I've have any of your own to just you know sort of pepper <laughs> out as you need money. <laughs> <laughs> I I, uh, I have I gave one to each of my kids. Of course, I give my kids one of everything all the time, even though they don't really care. And uh, yeah, I have two copies. That, so, yeah. I'm sure they do. They may just like be like, "Yay, okay," but it's. It's one of those things that's really also kind of super. Yeah, cool. right. Okay, so I have three sons. Um, they're uh, they're Breck is fifty and Jim is forty nine and Theon is uh, ten years is uh, forty one. And every time I give a product to Theon, 
He asked me for a gift receipt. <laughs> oh, he's going to regret that later. I implying that he wants to sell it back. <laughs> so That's you're actually. Yeah, I know. I'm horrified and I want to smack them. <laughs> They're all brutal teases. They love teasing me. So you're actually the reason when we started doing the gaming and you mentioned that you suggested I do that for my kids. So now everything I've written, I keep at least one copy for each of them plus one for myself. That's very good idea. You really don't think about like that they would want that. And then when they do, and if you've got to buy it all at once, that could be a hefty price tag if you've been around oh, yeah. for a while. Yeah, you bet. Like, you know, I've been doing it for 45 years. So if you bought one of everything and Breck has one of everything, it, it'd probably be close to 50, 60 grand. You would like all that money, though, if they were going to just offer it to you. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. yeah so no. do you, Doc, are you going to be okay? You gotta, that's a deep breath. I was just thinking what I'd do if my son my son auctioned off my, my signed copy books because, well, I only have one child, so he'll inherit everything. And, well, yeah, and, and I think, is there a way I can stop him from doing that? Not a way in the world. You know, <laughs> and that's why I'm selling most of my stuff on eBay right now, even as we speak. Because I'm positive it would, it would all just go in a fire sale. Is there? Oh, yeah. You want that $300 book? Yeah, I'll give it to you for a buck. <laughs> is, is there like a gaming museum that stuff could be donated to? There are a couple of museums, yes. And, and people do donate to them. That's true. Well, at least that's so. It's people that appreciate it, you know? No. Yes, that's the hope anyway. Yeah. Don't look so forlorn, Doc. Cut it out. She's I love looking, my book. I know. Seriously, I have a she's looking at her stuff, and she's now thinking about her kid selling them all for a quarter so, of So piece. funny story for you, Doc. So uh, when we started writing our series that involves ancient Egypt, he's like, oh, you know, I, I'm a sort of an expert at the gods and the demigods. Let me send you one of my books. And so I, I told Walt that, Grandpa Walt, and he's like, if he sends you, because I thought you were sending me the gods and the demigods. I was like, I think that's what he said he was going to send me. And I didn't know the value or any of the story behind it. And Walt's like, if he sends that to you, I'll buy it from you. Without <laughs> <laughs> uh, telling you the real worth of the book. Right. And so, no, so yeah. by the way, JR told me that. And I went, JR, I'm your podcast partner. If you're getting rid of it, I called him. <laughs> and so, and so I told James that when it came, because it ended up being his new book with the CNC, Castles and Crusaders, still very useful. It was the information of Gods and it, Monsters, it was. Of, of oh, there we go. It was, still had a lot of useful information for us to use in the book about the, the ancient history. And mm -hmm. I told James that, and he goes, no, JR, I don't like you that much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gods, Demigods, and Heroes sells for about $500 now. It sold for $10 back in the day. Well, you'll be happy to know. You've been uh -huh. universally vindicated on the accusations uh, of the era. Um, uh -huh. If you do any deep dives, they—they everyone acknowledges that they were, they were wrong to malign you. Uh, there we go. Yes. So. The, the, see, the bad guys, that, that's an interesting little story. So I wrote Deities and Demigods, and it had the Milnibo, Michael Moorcock's Milne Bonet and uh, Lovecraft's Cthulhu inside it. And, uh, and so... For various stupid reasons, TSR was forced to pull those two mythologies. And from that day on, everybody said Jim Ward plagiarized those two. That's why they had to get rid of it. Couldn't be further from the truth. I got written permission from both of them. But every Christmas time, for some reason, some knuckleheads get online and say, yeah, did you hear about Jim Ward plagiarizing um, <laughs> Lovecraft's and Michael Moorcock's work? 
just drives me. It's it's a it's a red big button that pushes me and gets me really crazy. <laughs> and and here's the thing. It honestly, if if that had been the case, you wouldn't have gone on to doing everything else that you've done. <laughs> That's true. The so lawyers would have owned everything. Actually, like use the logic brain because I've seen what happens to authors' careers when they get caught plagiarizing. They don't get to publish anymore. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's right. gonna exactly touch right. it no matter how good it is. Yeah. Plus, so, I consider myself very honorable, so I would never do that ever. No. No. They're just some people just lo- can't let go uh, and keep eating a dead horse because it's yeah, easy. Some people are unhappy when their ice cream is cold. I could I could see that. So, do you remember the very first time someone asked you for your autograph? The very first time, hmm. it was it was at a, a winter. F- oh, okay, this is kind of a stupid story. All right, so it's Winter Fantasy. It's about 1978, and uh, and we're at a little convention in Lake Geneva, and and this little boy comes up to me with this little two-inch penguin, and he says, "Would you please autograph this?" Well, you know, normally I would never do it, but it was a cute little kid, and and so it was, it was kind of a fun idea. So I I turned over the base, and and I I was able to put in there JMW, and I handed it back to him, and he gets a big smile on his face, and he walks away. So I I didn't I know isn't that adorable? Yeah, I didn't think anything of it until Saturday at the auction when he put the penguin up for auction. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And so I was so irritated, I started bidding on it. So I bid two bucks, and someone behind me bid three bucks, and uh, I didn't bother looking. And so I bid four bucks, and someone behind a different person bid five bucks. And I turned around, and all of my TSR friends were bidding on the penguin. <laughs> so, oh. so I I bidded. I, I had to buy it. For fourteen dollars, the stupid little two-inch penguin that I signed, and I threw it away in the garbage in disgust. Aww. Oh, yeah. So thank you for bringing that memory back to my head. I blame Doc. Yeah, <laughs> I'm blaming you, Doc. For working with Jr. is traumatic. Nobody believes me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I found that out the hard way. So. Can you tell us what it was like the first time you saw somebody reading something that you worked on? Oh, yeah, that was great fun. It was at a convention, and I saw him reading one of my adventures, and I went over I went over and said, hey, what do you think about that? And he, and he said, oh, it's pretty good, but there's some holes. <laughs> and so I smiled and just walked away. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's always a blast seeing people read your work. It's just great fun. So what is your funniest fan interaction that you've ever had oh they're a unique breed of people so well they really are i did have i did have a woman want me to sign her neck that was interesting (laughs) i know i never take janina conventions it's just too dangerous (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so I get you people, or her. Oh, <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, I get people wanting to sign body parts all the time, but the neck is probably as close to personal as I've ever gotten. I've signed wrists, and I've signed, I've signed arms, and I, I've seen yeah. people tattoo my name on their arm. That's bizarre, I'll tell you. 
I mean, it wouldn't be as bizarre if they were tattooing things you created. Yeah. That, would, that makes sense. I could dig it. But just the signature or the name, that's, I don't know that I'd go that far. I quite agree, JR. I, I mean, I knew somebody who was collecting doctor signatures, like from Doctor Who, and was doing that. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Did yeah. they tattoo the signatures? No, they then tattooed the signature. They had a tattoo artist go and tattoo it over where they signed. And, oh, yeah. Uh, neat. Neat. So that's Doctor dedication. Who fans are, uh, I'm a, I'm a huge I'm a Baker Doctor Who fan. Which Doctor Who do you like the best, Doc? I really like Eggleston. Really? I know it's just weird, but I it do. Is. Yeah. I'm sorry, my guy is much better than him, but that's all right. You can you can still be liked. Oh, thank you. So you're not gonna kick her out of the TARDIS? No. <laughs> that's hard to do these days. It is very yes. hard to do, but that's okay because Jr. Jr. can go sleep with the Daleks. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get all the hate mail, so send it beforehand. I'm gonna give you the email. It's Doc Saska at Blasters Blade Podcast. But I don't think the Daleks are that scary. They just look like trash cans with. Plunders. Oh my God, the largest mem- menace in the universe, Jr. <laughs> they weren't Metamorphosis Alpha, so they can't be that scary. Okay, I guess you're right about that. But I, I do have nasty robots in Metamorphosis Alpha. Were they inspired by the Daleks? No, no. I, I, I oh, try okay. very Yeah, really. I, I try very hard not to do copywritten material in my products. Probably smart. Yes. Uh, your lawyers would, would thank you for that. Yeah, really. That's the truth. All right. So uh, we prom- I'm going to ask you this next question, which we didn't prep you for because I promised a mutual friend. But I understand that you are a guild member of the longest running D&D gaming ed- guild uh, and you're adventuring beyond the barrier peak. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. The, the, those guys, those uh, Andrew Scott Perry is the head of a huge club on the East Coast. That has over a hundred menu members, and he runs he runs a game almost every night. I think he does like sixty hours a week of gaming. And one of the products he's is most proud of is is the Barrier Peak spaceship. And so what he's done is Gary did Gary did uh, three I think three levels it might have been four levels of a spaceship that crashed into the hills in in Greyhawk in his fantasy campaign, but. Andrew has got like 56 pizza um, platters. You know, the kind of the cardboard that you put a pizza on. He's got 56 of those written up has levels of a, of a spaceship. And he runs people. I know it's incredible. And he runs people through that and it's great fun. He runs it at every convention that he goes to. And this club is just amazing. It's filled with just fun people that, uh, that that just love gaming of every type, and it's, I'm very impressed with it. He was, and it's a very exclusive club too. You can't just join it; <laughs> you have to be invited in. So when I got invited, I was very happy, and so I I'm a member of that club and and try to be nice. I wonder, wonder if I can find that T-shirt that, that we wore T-shirts at GaryCon that uh, had the logos on the back. Fun stuff. So- was the the ship that crashed? Was it like a saucer? Because you said pizza box, so it was circular. It it was spherical. Okay. Yeah, okay. spherical. You know I wonder if they're ever going to like. Was that? I'm sorry, Doc. What was that? I was asking if Jr. knows what that shape is. Yeah, that's a ball. I got it. I'm <laughs> that sorry, was Doc. mean, Doc. Come on! Wow. She thinks just because I was infantry, I can't think or something. Oh, okay. So, well. I, 
have they digitized no, that at because all? Because you're an NCO. That makes me even I, smarter than everyone else. There we go. I'm I'm actually encouraging him to to digitize everything and produce it himself. But but he has three companies. Andrew Scott Perry. He's a very very busy man. In fact, I I I hesitate to even call him. You know, just for a friendly chat because he's so busy. So I don't know when that guy sleeps. I don't, I don't either. Think he does. I don't either. But you know what's cool? He's building a house on the lake, and he's decided that he needs to put a wizard's tower in the house. So I don't know how he, I don't know how he ever talked his wife into that. But that's that's way cool. I'm I'm very envious of it. I imagine at this point she's used to his uh, idiosyncrasies. I, I imagine it's yeah, and so. All right, so this is where we talk about the highlight reel, the the Reader's Digest, if you would, of your body of work. So you can give us the the summary, because obviously if you listed everything, we'd be here all night. Uh, you know, we might be here all night if I hit the high points. I mean, <laughs> 40, 46 years of game design. <clears throat> so, okay, so we'll go quickly through through the big deal things. First science fiction game, Metamorphosis Alpha, 1974. First apocalyptic role-playing game, Gamma World, 1976. I did Deities and Demigods and Of Gods, no, <laughs> Gods, Demigods, and Heroes, and Deities and Demigods showed the Pantheon so you can play with D&D &D and AD&D. &D. Those were a big deal. The the Deities and Demigods, the first release, sold 60,000 copies. Oh, that's not bad. That was, yeah, that's not bad at all. So I, I've done... I started doing uh, Dragon Magazine articles. Dragon Magazine was a big deal in the hobby industry. Um, in, in its heyday, it sold 50,000 copies a month. Wow. And I've I got a digital have, copy of all of them. Oh, yeah. You, well, not quite all of them. Yeah, probably. I have like 200 articles in Dragon Magazine. I wrote a lot for them. They, they liked my stuff. No, it was somebody who digitized their copies. Like they had literally everyone in print, and they scanned them. Okay, well that that's that's a great that's a great piece of value you have there, buddy. It's all mine. I'm not sharing. <laughs> yeah. well, that's probably very wise of you. Yes. Um. So keep going. I've been to lots of conventions. You know, the best convention, the gaming convention in the world, is in Germany in the fall. And uh, it's it has it has all the game companies from Europe come there and run games for the kids. All the schools um, in, in the area close and go to this convention for four days. And it's like five football fields of game companies. So that's that's pretty way cool. Oh, that's huge. So that was, that I've never fun. wanted to go to school in Germany more. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Wouldn't that be fun? Yes. So, um, And then, of course, we have to go into um, Precedence Publishing. That was a card game company down in Arizona, and I did Game of Thrones, and I did Babylon 5, and, and I did uh, Tomb Raider. Um, and when I say did them, I, I helped with one facet or the other. I, I proofread cards. I helped with art on the cards, um, assigning the art, not doing the art. I really can't draw a straight line with a ruler. Eh, just don't draw. aim for drawing a straight line, and you're good. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Exactly. And then, then the Troll Lord boys, um, that's uh, Castle and Crusades. I did uh, Tainted Lands, which is a horror box set that I'm very proud of. Of Gods and Monsters was another Pantheon book that I'm very proud of. But the best, 
product that I ever made, um, in my opinion, was the Storyteller's Thesaurus. So this is what happens. It's a normal thesaurus. You look up a word, you hear different versions of the word. But in my Storyteller's Thesaurus, you can look up castle and you see different parts of castles. Or you can look up um, legendary weapons and get a whole list of legendary weapons. And so it's, it's also a subject book that, that has lots of different subjects, horror, um, westerns, science fiction, fantasy. And so it's not just a word book, it's also a subject book. And I've been told by lots of different writers that it's an invaluable book for their desk. And you can get that at Troll Lord Games. So that was, oh, yeah, and then, uh, and then of course we're going to come to Giant Lands eventually, but uh, just before that, I've d I've done endless uh, module adventures, um, each one uh, better than the last, and uh, and then I I did a there's a, a Canadian graphic novel company called Black Dragon Ltd up in Canada, and I just finished a role playing game for them, and of course Stephen Dinehart's Giant Lands we're going to talk about. Um, a little bit um, in the future. And then then some stuff that I'm really proud of um, by Stephen Lee. Stephen Lee um, is, a, is a printer down in Florida. And he came up with a genius idea. Um, it's called 77 Lost Worlds. So aliens invade the Earth. They try to destroy it when, when Earth has 77 colonies out in the galaxy. And they almost destroyed the Earth. And they ruined their ability to go um, out and into the galaxy. Um, and so for 300 years, Earth tries to build back its resources. So that's 77 Lost Worlds. And there's a lot of uh, adventures to that. And there's books and, and anthologies to that. But the neat thing about it, I love when I make games to do different unusual things. And in 77 Lost Worlds, you don't roll dice when you role play. You draw cards. So when you want to hit something, you have to draw a diamond. When you want to do damage, you have to draw a heart or a diamond. And when you want to be safe, when you want to um, save from poison or, or not fall in a pit, you have to draw a spade. So all the while you have your own deck of cards and you're drawing cards to try to survive the adventure instead of rolling dice. I thought it was a really cool idea and it, it's got uh, really a lot of good press from people and then of I course need that game you need that my game dad. yes so, oh, so no, no. my dad can roll 20 d6s oh yes and, get and 19 ones and a two wow that's pretty amazing so yeah you need that game and you yeah. can get that at firesidecreations.com but also I, so i said to Stefan, if it worked once it'll work twice after we did um 77 lost worlds I said to Stefan, Stefan, you need a fantasy version. So he said, okay, Jim. So we did dragon scales. So you use the same deck of cards in the fantasy version, except dragons rule the planet. And if a wizard wants to cast spells, he has to grab a dragon and rip its scales off to cast the magic. So it's it's a it's a fight between humans and dragons for the magic of the scales. Oh my goodness! I know, kind of a fun. No way, thing. no way that ends badly for the dra for the wizard. <laughs> for the wizard or the dragon? Yes, exactly right. Well, lucky for us, dragons die just on their own 
and they can go and find the, the magical stick scales don't rot. They just stay around to be found. So people are invading caves all the time looking for dead dragons so they can grab their scales. Kind of like That's another weird. treasure. Yeah. Okay. So there's, lots of there's lots of adventures for that, too. I'm very proud of that product. So I, th I think that's just about me, buddy. So while all of that sounds fascinating, obviously you mentioned it, but we're here to talk about Giant Land Game RPG, which is by Wonder Filled Publishing. Yes, um, exactly right. So where did you come up with the premise for this concept? No, you're going to love this little story. So two years ago, Stephen Dinehart um, is on Facebook, and he, he's on the Game World page. He's a real big fan of, of Game World. And he talks to a guy named Kim Eastlin. Kim Eastlin is, is a former TSR employee that he and I got along pretty good. And he, he also loved Gamma World. And, and Steven said, you know, I got this idea. And it's going to be like Gamma World, but it can't be Gamma World. So I wonder if you'd help me write it. And Kim Eastlin said, you know, I'll help you, but I'm not going to do it unless Jim Ward helps too. And Steven said, well, who the heck is Jim Ward? And so Kim, you know, gave my, my bona fides and, and told him how much I'd done in the past. And, and so uh, Kim introduced me to Stephen, and we talked on the phone, and this man had an amazing idea. I was once again hooked like a fish. So his idea is, well, let's do a role-playing game, Jim. That'll be a lot of fun. But let's take that role-playing game and turn it into an amusement park. My eyes lit up, Doc, just like you just did. An amusement park? Yeah, and the characters can play at home and develop their characters as much as they want, and then they can go to the amusement park and be their characters. And I said, wow, that is an amazing idea. So a game within a game. So it's a game within a game, yeah. And his, his idea is just fabulous. So basically what happens is it's a little ways in the future, and uh, Gaia, the nature goddess, wakes up. And she, she checks her world, and she absolutely hates what humans have done to it. And it her, enrages her. So she, she causes earthquakes and famine and destruction to every single city, every single town, every single house. Oops. Oops. In, in anger for what humans did. And she brings back the giants and she brings back fantasy creatures to help nature restore itself. And there's, there's a few humans left alive, but not many, and she's mad at them. So you start the game as either one of these fantasy characters or one of, or a human, and you have to please Gaia. You have to restore the environment, which I think is a great theme for role-playing. Talk about, you know, teaching your kids good values. But, yeah, you, when, you, when you please her, she gives you rewards. And basically you have to deal with giants. Giants rule all the villages. Giants rule all the cities. And if you're not nice to giants, if you're not nice to them, they stomp you into the earth. So you learn diplomacy, and and it's a it's a percentile game. It's a one d it's a d hundred one d hundred game where you roll percentiles for everything, damage and and character generation and and saving throws. You're rolling percentile dice. That's another little trick. I've I've never seen it done, so I wanted to do it. And uh, and we've got an adventure out that's coming out in June called The Broken Road. 
I ran it at GaryCon, which is a convention that you guys have come to in March. <laughs> you can get hotel reventions, hotel reservations right now, Jr. So get busy on that. <laughs> and, Jr. doesn't do public places. I mean, he barely crowds bug me. Like I don't. Uh, and GaryCon is huge. I've seen pictures. Like that's like bigger than DragonCon, right, Doc? No, that's only about <laughs> it's only about twenty five hundred people. DragonCon, I, I think. Is up to 15, isn't it? Dragon Con had a forced cap of 48 last oh, year. Oh, wow. Neat. Cool. And 2019, they had 85,000. Did I they like, really? I like wow. giving her they are just can't do the math. Yeah, that's that amazing. For a reason, but we're going to pause for a moment right now where we shamelessly show for the man. From our Max Tilsley author of Brains, the post-apocalyptic pick-a-path adventure with more than 60 endings, comes the Susie Steele Adventures. Susie has a heart of gold, a set of bad dreams, and a hidden destiny. Six months ago, Susie's father went to work and never returned, leaving Susie to her hobby of chasing away nannies. That is, until the mysterious and glamorous Cassandra roars into her life, driving a red sports car and promising to be the best of friends. When Susie stumbles on her father's secret lair, a world of magic, ghosts, and mysteries beckons. Can she discover the truth, avoid being expelled from school, and keep a ruthless secret society off her back? She's to have a ghost of a chance. She'll need the help of her best friends, one grumpy cat, and a whole lot of daring. The Susie Steele Adventures from R. Max Tilsley. Book 1, The Steel Trap. Book 2, The Steel Bite. Perfect for readers 9+. Plus. Available in print and ebook. All right, so thank you for sticking with us. We had James M. Ward telling us about uh, Dragonlands. Uh, I am going to, or excuse me, Giantlands. I'm going to show you a little um, little video clip real quick of some of the art from this game book, and then James is going to go back to telling us about it. So give us just a second, dear listener, and check. All right, so the video slideshow that I did wouldn't translate very well to the audio-only platform, so I cut that part out. Um, but if you want to listen to it, we will make a special post of just that on the YouTube channel. I'll hyperlink that into the show notes. So if you want to just watch the little slideshow I made of all the art that was available from this podcast, uh, from this Giant Lands game, that'll be available for you to check out separately. And uh, sorry for that a little awkward jump, but, you know, I'm still learning the tech, people. What can I say? I'm a technical troglodyte. This all right, so I am not the perfect slideshow, and I thought, oh, a minute and a half, 1.30, that's like the perfect length. And then we watched it in the pre, pre-show pre doc while you were waiting on traffic, and we realized, wow, that's really, really long. So we just cut part of it. I think what I'm going to do is uh, once this interview goes live, I'll uh, upload the slideshow separate, and then we'll just we'll link to Giantland so people can buy it and check it out. That's uh, terrific. music, though. Yes, it's a public domain because I didn't want to get sued either. James I thought was, it was kind of loud, actually. Yeah, I don't know how to do the volume on that, but I know James, his advice to every new author is don't get sued because only the lawyers win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, all right. So you were telling us about the concept of um, the Giant's Land uh, RPG. Yes. So but, you want me to continue with that? Please, and then we'll go. And I'll show the cover specifically, and we can talk about that. But first, the, how the idea came. Can you go back to okay. where you were? Of course, of course. So, um, first of all, Giant Lands is the first fantasy apocalyptic 
role-playing game. So that's kind of a neat idea. It combines fantasy with, uh, with science fiction. So you have, you have lots of equipment from the ancients, from like 2,300, 2,400. You have lots of equipment lying around because naturally they made it almost indestructible because that's, that's a, just a smart thing to do. But you also have ley lines, L-E-Y lines. And there are such things as ley lines. They're kind of magnetic lines of force that circle the earth. And in giant lands, you can use the ley line power to make magical spells. Um, and we call that ley magic. And uh, it, it's just as fun as being a wizard, but you have lots of different choices on what kind of magic you can cast. And so the, the objective is constantly to, to fix the environment. So you see lots of environmental problems, forests dying, water being polluted, just on and on and on and on. And every time you manage to fix, and, and basically adventures are going out and trying to fix a problem. In The Broken Road, the first adventure, um, the, the river has been tainted by something. And so you have to go up to the source of the river and find out what's causing the problem. And you find out that it's a gigantic tanker that has gone in a great big lake and it is spewing this horrible fluid that's flying, flying, flowing down the river and, and tainting into making all the giants sick. The humans aren't sick because they don't drink as much water as the giants do. But the giants are deadly ill and, and dying out. And you have to fix this environmental problem. And every time you fix the problem, you get a reward. Um, and... You, you go up in levels in giant lands by fulfilling quests. You don't use experience points. You do quests. And three, four, five, six different quests will help you go up a level. And, okay. uh, and, and quests are all just, they're just fun parts of the adventure. So um, in, in one of the quests that I have for this broken road, you just have to find the source of the pollution. And in another quest, you have to figure out how to deal with saving the giants so when you and again when you finish quests if you finish three or four quests you can go up a level during the adventure which is kind of fun so and there's neat things in the game there's ray guns and there's there's all the different science fiction things that are just a fun to play with there's broken robots and and there's there's this and that and again you're always rolling percentile dice to do things so if you want to figure out a piece of technology that you've never seen before you have to roll percentile dice, and uh, and low is always good, which reminds me of an interesting story. So I'm playing Metamorphosis Alpha with Gary Gygax because he, he loved to be a player in that game because poor Gary, he never got to be a player often. He always had to run D&D or AD&D. So he loved being a player too. So he would when I came down um, from my teaching job down on, in my vacations, he would insist that we played Metamorphosis Alpha. So one day, we're playing Metamorphosis Alpha, and he's he's he and his group are searching uh, uh, this weird forest area, and they find this big building, which is very unusual in the forest, because after 300 years, you'd think most buildings would be destroyed. So he goes in there, and he's having problems because he's not getting enough food, and he's not getting enough water. And so... He, he goes in this he goes in this small room and he sees this weird white thing 
He says, wow, what is that? I'm going to try to figure it out. And so I have these nice flow charts to figure out things on. And he starts playing with it, and, and he, he sees a handle, and he sees stuff. And finally, he does the right thing, and a flow of water comes down the white thing. And he's so pleased, and he loads up his canteen, and, and, he, and the other guys load up their canteens from this white flow of water. And, and then he sits back and said, Jim, you did not make me drink out of a urinal, did you? <laughs> and I shook my head and said, yeah, you were drinking out of a urinal. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't a happy man, but, but he got water. <laughs> I mean, water? probably hadn't been used in a while, so there's that. Exactly right. Probably hadn't. <laughs> well, did, uh, where did the idea for the urinal come up with? Is that you or was that? Uh... That was no, that was me. You know, it, you do a lot of figuring out of technology because you're potty humor. Yeah, <laughs> that was very good, Doc. Well done. Um, don't be funnier than the guest, okay? <laughs> it's kind of a rule I have. Anyway, um, you do a lot of figuring out of technology in Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma World, and so he, he's constantly. When you search out the Starship Warden, you're constantly going to places that you've never seen before. You start out as, as a native in a grass hut with a turtle shell shield and a spear. And you, and you start exploring the levels in the world. And so you often find things you've never seen before. Just one okay. of the themes. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about this cover? Because it's a really neat cover. There's a lot going on with this. Okay. Can we show the cover so I can talk about no, it? No, first of all, if JR can do his job. Uh, there we go. Oh, so this is this is a Larry Elmore piece of art. Ooh, um, Elmore is amazing. Elmore is amazing. I worked with him at TSR. We're really good friends. And and so I was talking that he, um, Stephen Deinhardt, wanted a, a good artist to do a picture for him. And I said, well, you know, I know Larry Elmore, but he's not going to be cheap. And Stephen said, Larry Elmore? <laughs> so I got him in contact with Larry, and Larry was very kind and gave him a cut rate on this amazing piece of art. And Stephen uses it. Stephen uses different parts of it in, in lots of different products. So, you know, you see, you see the dragon on the stairs, and you see the, the pretty girl in a picture. And, and Larry has drawn this, you know, so high quality that every single one of these images can be used as a, as a cover all by itself. And I think the Giant Lens logo that he came up with is pretty cool. You, you instantly know, you know, that that's clearly a GL Giant Lens kind of thing. And so the, the box, um, I don't know if I can show it. Let's see. I have the box here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to just do this. Okay. So now this is the same cover as what's there. But the nice part about it is um, Stephen is, is an, an old-time gamer. He loves gaming in all its facets. And so he said to himself, I want to make a small box, just like the brown box set. And, and I want to uh, make the booklets in the box just like Gary did his booklets. So there's three booklets, and one's a player's guide, and one's a referee's guide, and one's the coolest monster manual you'll ever see. The monsters are just so well drawn. And so it kind of harkens back to the original 1974 book, except Stephen decided to go one better. And there is an amazing 
if I can dig it out here. There is an amazing map. I'm not going to pull this whole thing out. I'm just going to show you. There's an amazing full-color map in this product, which I think is way cool, that shows the United States. And there are three different... All right. So sorry about this awkward jump, but we had a slight snafu where uh, the lovable Mr. James Ward's uh, computer system went haywire. Um, I think the mouse ate the cords or something. Uh, it's old. What can we say? The tech he uses, but he creates masterpieces with it. So we're glad you stuck with us. Uh, we're sorry for the jump, but let's get back into the podcast. Oh my God, we lost me. That's yeah, okay. Me... Just for a few minutes. Where right, where did I... it go away? Which which right did I read? You, right after you were talking about the map, we lost you. So give me a second to write. Oh, I'm very sorry. I don't know why that happened. Right, Sometimes it just... happens. It doesn't happen to me, Doc. Don't That's you know what I'm... all the guys say? <laughs> hey, give me just a second. I need a break point. Don't you know I'm legendary? Right. So you were just telling us about the map before I had a snafu and hit the wrong button. So, yeah, so you yeah. said he made the map, and then what came with the map? Let me repeat just a let me repeat just a little bit here. So we've got this marvelous, full color, huge map that details different areas. And different cool places. And it kind of shows the whole world. Now, okay, so, okay, so, huge, huge map. Okay, way cool. And on the other side, there's a way cool Giant Lands poster, which I don't think anybody's ever going to use because the map is so neat. So, um, besides the full color map that is just like a road map to, to fold, almost impossible. Um, besides the full-color map, there are character sheets, and there's full-color ones that show how it should be done. Let me show you a full-color character sheet. Okay, so full-color character sheet, way cool. But there's also, not again, text message. Well, JR, <laughs> JR sent me a text message. Do he I does care? that. No, okay. ignore him. That's what I I'm, do. Ign <laughs> I'm ignoring it. Okay, there's also a black and white that you can photocopy character sheet, which I think every role-playing game should have in it. So you can, nice. make your own, you can make your own character sheets officially. So he's, he's spared no expense. He's done a first-class job. It's as good as any publication out there today, including all the wizards and and uh, and all the other boys that are out, all the big boys out there. This is just dynamite stuff that I'm very proud of, and I and I hope you all go to giantlands.com and pick up a copy. And this is an independent publishing game publishing company, correct? Yes, sir. Wonderful games, wonderful games. So. All right, Doc, we're back on track. I, I derailed us a little bit, but but you can pull it off because we're on question 23. Okay, and I'm, and I'm sorry I, I bleeped out for a second. That's okay. JR, it's all JR's fault. Okay. Well. <laughs> James, I can accept on my that. side. No, no, no. <laughs> well, you've kind of given us what the 30-second elevator pitch for this is, but what if people were still confused, what would you say if the 30-second elevator pitch is? Come play Giant Lands because... Uh, come play Giant Lands if you like 
science fiction. Come play Giantlands if you like fantasy. Come play Giantlands if you like blowing things up. Come play Giantlands if you want to save the environment. So I, I was getting some very uh, Captain Planet vibes when you were describing some of the missions. Okay. Doc, I can see your face. You, you were seeing it too. Uh, are you aware of that franchise at all? or Because your kids would have been the right age. I, I, I've seen Captain Planets, yes. Was that at all in your head? Uh, well, obviously you can't answer that. Um, um, by the way, uh, JR, I try very hard not to do copywritten material. So, no, <laughs> it was not in my head at all. Just like Thundar the Barbarian isn't a copy of Gamma World. Absolutely. All right, Doc, save me from myself and ask the next question. <laughs> I've been trying to save you for yourself for four years now. It's been a oh, long time. There we go. So, uh, you've talked some about what makes your game special game mechanics wise and um but sorry, I'm looking at this and I'm like, you've you've told us so much about the game at this point and and it's wonderful. I'm not complaining. I I'm super excited to go buy this and um we can't tell my brothers about it because they might be getting it for Christmas or their <laughs> great idea. I support this plan. Yeah. So yeah, well, they're they're hardcore gamers. So what mm. can I say? I know. There we go. Thing. See, this is where I did my Christmas shopping. And by the way, there's percentile dice in the box set. Oh, very cool. Are they unique to the box set? Are they? Yes. Like, yes. Random? Yes, they are. Nice. Because awesome. who doesn't need new dice? Who doesn't need more dice? Yeah, exactly. Except for those people who play Dragon Scales and Seventy Seven Lost Worlds who scoff at dice. <laughs> this it's is so true, fun. but 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 Wonderfield Games would get very mad if we didn't sell their stuff right now. So we're gonna <laughs> the dice. So, so go ahead, Doc. You, you got no, me. You're fine. You can talk. So, um, so you messed her up a little bit because we have the questions in order, and when guests answer them out of order, it's like, uh, how do we adjust on the fly? You uh, I'm very sorry. After, no, 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 no. It's just episodes, I've had a very I, I went and played with chemicals today at work. So it's ah, I see. Today. Plus, I'm very old, so I do things like that. No. So you, you've told us a little bit about what makes the system special in that it's all D100 uh -huh. percentile dice. Uh -huh. um, so specifically with the universe, does the is the universe what's left just North America like the map you showed? Is there more to the world that players could eventually explore? Or are they limited to, to the map as you've shown it? Well, the map is the world. It's the whole world. So okay. they're supposed to explore and they're supposed to find out that there are ways to get up to space stations up in the sky. But those things are gigantically technical. And so they're going to have tons of problems there. Plus, um, Guy has no problem transporting them places they don't want to go. She sounds like she's not very nice to them. She she does not she like humans. With them and they yes. kind of earned it. They kind of earned it. We have earned it. Yes, that's why I, re I really like the the major theme of the game because you know we we need to think about this kind of stuff and it won't hurt for kids that are playing the game to realize that the environment is important and and they need to fix things themselves. So is one of the magics that people can acquire like nature weather magic then? Oh, there's yeah, there's there's like five different types of magic that you can get, but it's all connected to the ley lines, and 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 ley lines actually are a real thing. You can Google them, um, and they they crisscross the earth, and uh, and in certain places there's three or four ley lines 
that are crossing each other to make great big pools of of energy and like Stonehenge is a place like that um, the pyramids are a place like that there are just places like that all over the earth and uh, and there there's a lot of speculation by archaeologists that that early man could sense the lines of force just like birds can birds can sense the magnetic lines of force and so that's why they're able to fly um, to fly south in the winter and and back north in the in the summer so you if the ley line magic is so important and that's obviously uh terrestrial base how does that translate once they get into the space station because now they're not on a ley line okay that's a very good question jr that's an amazingly good question <laughs> uh, uh in the course of the game, as you make a character, you're given a sigil coin. A sigil coin is a gift from Gaia, and it gives you uh, a special power. It gives you one of five special powers. And every morning at dawn, you pick one of those five, and they're ley line related. And so one of the things you're doing as you play the game is you're trying to collect more coins because they have a ley line power inside them. So when you go up to that space station, um, you can use the power of your, your coin to do things with lay magic. Okay. So it's the, like the little, trick, little batteries of power. So the trick is to get enough of them that you can stay empowered or stay up there for short times to go down and recharge? Exactly right. Yes. You know, and everything <laughs> I have to say, I, I hope I hope uh, DC isn't listening to this, but everything I do is related to to red kryptonite and Superman. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Superman had all those different colors of kryptonite that did different things to his body. And uh, and that's kind of this idea, too, that there are different kinds of, of sigils that do different things to the to the medallion wearer's body. And one of the treasures that you can find is you can find different sigils. So you go out there, and when you find all five of the different sigils, Gaia will give you a wish. Be Captain Planet. Do, yeah. do, do wishes from Gaia go as badly as Genie wishes in D and D did? Pretty much all the time, buddy. Pretty much all the time. People so, do not take enough time to consider wishes. So when you send them up, do they take a a, a space elevator to get up, or, or are they taking an actual ship? Yes. Yes. Yes to both. Okay. So there's also chances for that to crit fail. Well, how do you have a critical fail if you don't have a D twenty? Is, is that built into your D100? Yeah, okay. Interesting story there. You're getting all my interesting stories tonight. Pretty soon you'll know all about me. But Gary did not like critical hits. We did not do that D20 critical hit stuff until much later in the evolution of the game. And so I don't like them either. So I had never put them in. Okay. So do you have a table on what the roles translate to, or is it uh, a little Do I have a table? I have tables all over those rules. Now, <laughs> one through five is an automatic success. But then as you go up um, in different kinds of tasks and different kinds of abilities, like combat, usually everybody's combat is a one through 35 to hit. And then they have to deal with the armor class. And the armor class subtracts from your role to hit. So if there's an armor class of 10 and you, you hit on a 1 through 35, you you will now, when you try to hit that guy that has an armor class 10, you'll hit on a 1 through 25. Okay, that makes sense. Keeps it and different. sometimes the armor class is so big that you can't hit. 
But on a one through five, you always hit. So most of the time, if the armor class is that high, you're better off just living to fight another day. Or being diplomatic. I like to encourage diplomacy in my role-playing games because that's probably some of the most fun role-playing that you can do. Is that something you've always done, or is that something you came to later as you had more experience? I came. That's a geez. You're just asking tons of good questions today, Jr. That's <laughs> something I, I came through in my 40s and 50s. I decided it was more fun to do that. You know, okay. In 1974, when I'm playing D and D, there was no themes. There was no storylines. It was fight the monster, kill the monster, get the monster's treasure. So things like Dragonlance or Ravenloft or Greyhawk, they, they hadn't developed into storylines yet. So um, so that's kind of my 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 background. Um, so I, I, I finally decided, okay, that's fun, but that's kind of young person fun. The, the older people want to have dip, diplomacy. The older people want to, to become the mayor of the city. The older people want to do things besides fighting. Um, and so that's what I started working into my games. Awesome. So is this something that you've mentioned that there's the upcoming release of a of a campaign setting and there's what's already out? Is there going to be continually supported um, updates to this universe or is this one of those <laughs> systems that once you're done? Yeah, okay. So that's kind of like asking your wife. No, that's kind of like your wife asking her, do you think I'm fat? And of course, there's only one answer to the do you think I'm fat question if you want to survive. So Not the one my ex-husband gave. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> well, that's why he's the ex. But, <laughs> but, uh, but um, naturally, there's plans for doing lots more product. Um, um, Steph and I are talking about doing a Pick-A-Path adventure book. JR, do you know, do you know what a Pick-A-Path adventure book is? I do. I, I, I read a lot of them. I remember the Lone Wolf series books. Oh, um, yeah, sure. And I, I kept the whole series for some reason. It was in uh -huh. a, a box in my mom's attic. So uh -huh. when she finally said, come get your crap, you got your own house and your own attic now. Uh, I was going through that, and my son, my oldest, was glad to have them. So now he's working his way through the Lone Wolf Adventures that I read as a kid. I didn't even know I had them. I didn't know what happened to them when I went off to the Army. Oh, I just, wow. I just thought, oh, okay, they got donated. And so when I saw them, it was like, I won the lottery. Yeah, so You're those who don't know, the Pick a Path Adventures are just lots of fun. Basically what happens is you start reading the story, and when it gets to a very important point in the book, you're given a choice. So, do you wish to go in the dragon's cave, or do you wish to go in the pool of piranha? And you get to pick which one of those you pick. And then when you pick that, you go to page 34, and you're in the dragon's cave. What kind of light sources do you have? Well, if you don't have a light source, you're walking in the dark. And so, if you're walking in the dark, you go to page 3. If you have a light source, you go to page 64. And the storyline continues on and on and on. And, and that's the Pick a Path Adventure. And they're, they're lots of fun because you can reread them so many different ways. Oh, my goodness. I should have never gone in the Dragon's Cave. I'm going to try the Pool of Piranha. And you can read a storyline where you play with the Pool of Piranha. So Pick a Path books are lots of fun. We're talking about doing a Giant Lance Pick a Path book. I hope, I hope it gets done. That sounds like it would be a blast. It, 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 there, there are lots of hard work to write. They are hard. It, it, I'm pretty fast. But it takes me six to seven months to write a pick a path book. Yeah, those Just um, they're almost time. like if there was 
they would be more popular if somebody could write a program where you just, you know, insert the various story options and it <laughs> tracked it for you because, oh my goodness, I just, my head hurts. I, you'd look like a serial killer with all the strings on the cork board. Yes, yes. I just, those things out. I just did a pick a path book for Troll Lords and, uh, and it was it was three different graph papers filled with the paths because they're bears to edit because you you can't you can't edit it from page one to page ten because there's so many different choices in those pages so you have to actually follow a map of the story choices you have to go from one to nineteen to fifty six to seventy four and you got to make sure it works that way and so that's why they, there's three in, in the book that I gave them, there's three different major paths that they go down, um, three different storylines that they try to have fun on. And they're, they're usually they're pretty deadly. I kind of write deadly versions. So in, in that book, there's only three three ways to win. Um, so the, it's, it's a challenge to, to do well. Are they like crunchy in that they're, you know, you got to, try to fight the things or is it literally just pick the pick the path and the story goes i've seen well, some it, where there's game mechanics built in yeah yeah no there there are game mechanics built in i i don't do i've done them but i don't like for people to have to roll dice in the game or people to have to to use the the rules of the game because um it, it slows the thing down you know it slows the action down so i try to give them that i try i i do all that off camera as it were so that uh, they can just play the game and, and do the choices. All right, Doc, next one's yours. So JR commented, and he, it looks like you have a plague mask on one of those guys. No, okay, that's, a, that's another interesting feature that we've built into the game. If you cosplay, you can get plus percentage dice roll. So if you're wearing a mask while you play the game, you get a plus 5% on every roll you make. And Ooh, wow. if you're wearing a costume and a mask, you get a plus 15% on every role you make. So we're encouraging cosplay because the 8, 9, and 10-year-olds are really getting into cosplay in a big way. We wanted to encourage the play. And, and if the theme park happens, excuse me, if the theme park happens, which I hope it will, you can take that costume of yours and go to the theme park and get special benefits from wearing a costume. So nice. this is kind of a, an interesting feature that we've built into the game. I like it. Yeah. That is very cool. Thank you. So whose idea was that? Was that yours? Well, or was that your, or your co-writers? It's kind of a co-author co thing. He he knew we wanted to have people wearing costumes and, and masks. We just didn't know exactly how we wanted to do it. So I built in the, the percentage increase in, in having both of those. I don't think I've ever heard anyone do that outside of some sort of house rule, like as far as official rules. That's probably a first. You know, Jr., that's a first, and that's because I like doing things first. <laughs> it's like he said that before, Doc. Yeah, really, about a million times. All right. Um, You're not that original, Jr. <laughs> oh no, I, I try. He tries. Well, you know, one one day I will be as good as James. One day, <laughs> if you live that long, buddy. <laughs> so, as a designer, obviously you've got to create these the immersive world itself. Mm -hmm. um, how do you go about creating your world without stifling the ability of the game master to tell his own or her own story within that creation? I'll see another good question. 
um, basically I tell them to start small. I say when you're when you're setting up your own game, and, and I truly believe anybody who enjoys role playing wants to be a referee. That's just the way it is. And I tell them to start small. Don't make a great big world. Don't make gigantic cities. Don't make millions of monsters. Do a little castle and a little village and build it from there because people can have weeks and weeks of real-time adventuring in a little castle and a little village. And so I, I try to tell them to keep it small and as they play, develop more and more and more. So I'm actually in a Discord server for uh, GM, like game ma masters and dungeon masters and whatnot. Uh -huh. it's, it's designed to bring new people in and help new game masters because what you find uh, the barrier to entry for most people gaming is finding someone who actually wants to run the game as yeah. opposed to play a character. Sure. So, so there's whole Discord set up trying to give advice. And so I'd ask them for help with mapping questions because I can't draw to save my life. Like I never uh -huh. made it past uh -huh. stick figures and uh -huh. even those were horrible. Um, and so, they, you know, everyone kept giving me all this weird advice. So finally, none of it was clicking and I called you. And that's what you said. Well, start with your map. Just use England, the United Kingdom, because it's a contained island. And then you can sort of expand outwards. And it didn't even occur to me when I went back and I'm like, oh, I got this. People were like, did you find an answer? I'm like, yeah, I just called James Ward. Like, what the hell are you talking to us for? You could just call him. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty That's funny, what buddy. it really uh, really occurred to me that people think you're a really big deal because you're just James, right? Like we were, we were talking. And I'm like, just oh, a regular person that puts my pants on one leg at a time. I, they were like, are you just trying to name drop? I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with that. You know, I, I I talk about Gary all the time because he taught me, you know, everything I know about design and playing. And so, you know, I, I like to bring his name up. And, and I, I have to say, I think Wizards has, has purposely not developed the Gary Gygax name, which, which makes me very sad. And so I do it, and Luke... Luke Gygax, uh, Gary's son, does it with his convention every March that you have to go to, you two. And, uh, <laughs> I'm noticing the theme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I just think people should should be more aware of it. I mean, 8, 9, and 10-year-olds have no idea that Gary Gygax made D&D &D and AD&D. &D. My so, son does, but he's an unusual little child. Oh, uh, there we go. So I, we talked about this some in the pre-show, but like uh, I started getting into it because my oldest son, he started playing at one of um, some some therapy programs, and they use it to teach kids on the spectrum, um, yeah, um, sort of emoting and how to you know interact with people better. And he uh -huh. had a friend that that had learned it that way, and so he his friend was trying to teach him. So he came home, daddy, daddy, daddy. Guess what I just discovered? So I of course started looking and trying to figure it out. And it, I went the expensive route because somebody suggested GURPS was the easy way to get started. Uh, and then after like the 50th book, I'm like, nope, I'm done. None of this makes any sense. There's too many rules. <laughs> uh, and so I went I went back old school because it was simpler to me. Like the nothing against 5e. I've got no dog in that fight. But it seems more complicated than the original stuff uh -huh. in, in a way that slowed it down for, for kids just trying to want to play an adventure and stab things. Sure. So. Sure. Interesting story. Um, so you're right. Nowadays, um, there's a lot of talk about um, needy kids learning how to play D&D &D to learn how to interact with people. So the time is 1975, and we want to promote the game in as many places as possible. And we discovered that prison psychologists love the game. Why do they love the game? Because it gives prisoners a chance 
to be um, aggressive and not hurt anybody and learn how it isn't always a good idea to be aggressive. So that game started playing in prisons until until the prison uh, groups decided having dice in the prison wasn't a good idea. <laughs> so they stopped it after after that. But we did a we did a version of the game that had um, counters, numbered counters that you put in a cup and you draw it when you wanted a number, and that sold in the prisons like wildfire. So prisoners actually were playing the game to adjust socially, which I think is way cool. That hardly ever gets talked about. I, I heard about it with the special needs kids, but I didn't know the, the prison thing. That's It's cool, though. Like, Did you know when you were creating that that, that, that it was going to have that impact on people's lives? Yeah, no, they had no idea. But I, I'll tell you a, a trade secret, okay? Gary purposely made that game so good guys do better than bad guys because he wanted good to win out over evil. And you hardly ever see it, but when you're playing the game, you can play an evil character. You can play a nasty, lying, horrible guy, but the world treats you far worse than if you're playing a good character. And he did that on purpose. It's, it's very subtle in the game. But you learn that if you're good, you get treated well and rewarded, and if you're bad, you get treated badly. So I, I just think it's genius on his part, and that never gets talked about either. I think in the modern age, this new there's a trend that you know every point is valid, and I, to a point, I get that. But I do think there's there's definitely a role for evil is evil and good is good, and, and that has to matter too. Um, and so, like, I, I can see a little bit of both sides, but I, I definitely think there's value in what he was doing with that from a cultural standpoint. Like, sure, you know, there, there are some lines you just shouldn't cross, you know, and, and it's obviously up to the individual to determine where those lines are, but they mm -hmm. have to be there for you to be a a, a moral being. Sure. So, sure. But, but we could spend forever talking about philosophy and we'll put Doc to sleep and she's got to wake up early as it is. And I'm going to have to buy her some coffee. So uh, before before we do that, and she hates me forever. Um, how do you think the the world of gaming has been um, changed by the advent of the way technology interact? <laughs> Buy me a coffee. Yeah. How do you think technology has changed the way people game? Okay, that's that's a that's a very fair question. Um, so far, we we've got computer games out there, and and many of them have their roots in D and D and in role playing in general. But so far, there really hasn't been a, a computer game that is quite as good as a dungeon master. But the advantage that a computer game has is you can sit in your house all by yourself and play and see all the visuals and interesting adventures that that the, the regular DMs give you. So that that's a real nice feature, and that's only getting better and better and better and better. Um, so that part is good, plus another good feature is you guys are on the East Coast. I'm in Wisconsin, and we can have an adventure, and we can play D&D &D together, and I think that's a great feature. I play Absolutely. games with my friends every Thursday morning, every Thursday morning, and they're all over the United States. So and I think that feature alone is way cool. And talk about bringing people together. You know, the Germans, the Germans can play games with the Japanese, can play games with the Americans. So that, that's just another, you know, hands across the water kind of thing that you can make happen, which, which I think is very valuable. Yeah. So that, um, 
that is something that you don't you don't think about. I was when I asked the question generically, I was thinking like the virtual tabletop type stuff, but just the the fact that you can reach out and touch someone from so well, that sounds bad, but that you can play with <laughs> That you can game with people from all over is, is there. We go. There we in go. In of itself has value, and I hadn't considered that. So, yes. W- when did you start to see that shift? I mean, did was well, it only with internet and computers, or did they do it telephonically? No, that that started right away. You know, um, SSI did the first gold box set, Pool of Radiance, and uh, and they were there. They were. Uh, it was Commodore sixty four was role playing online before that that. Uh, before that uh, computer game came out. And there were a couple of early computer games in 82 and 83. Ultima was one of the first ones. And uh, and so they, they were onto it as soon as, says, computer programmers started getting in companies because the computer programmers are, are likely D&D players. You know, they learned it in college um, because you got lots of free time in college. So playing D&D is a natural thing to do. And so that that was early on in the computer industry where they wanted to play games. All right. Before I ramble and, and make Doc mad, I'm going to let her ask her question next because she's giving me the stink eye. Uh-huh. I'm not giving you the stink eye. Um, um, you I don't know. I, JR picked this one, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, huh? So, yeah. <laughs> do, I, so, do I need to ask it, Doc? Are you good? I can ask it. Just show, hold your horses, you little bossy baby. Uh huh. Um, I'm glad so, to see you have such a close relationship. <laughs> you're like bickering like, is our love language. Oh, okay, it's, it's, the only, it's the only love language the infantry understands. Uh huh. <laughs> Good thing I wasn't infantry. Um, but do you think there's any kind of genre that fits and translates the best into? A gaming medium? Ooh. Now see that's that's another very good question. <laughs> and the answer is it's it's very wide. I mean TSR did purposely did lots of campaign worlds because we thought it was like fishing. You use the proper bait, you attract the proper person. So um the horror fans out there that are buying tons of horror paperbacks, we have Ravenloft for them. The Arabian Nights fans, we have Al Qadim for them. Um, we have D&D for the fantasy fans. They had uh, Star Frontiers for the science fiction fans. So pretty much every genre out there has, has a game attached to it because we want to attract all of those people. Um, Westerns, we had Boot Hill. Um, so there's lots of readers out there that we wanted to attract. One of the big things that we struggled with for years and years and years was getting women to play D&D. Um, in really? the early, yeah, in the early oh, years, it was ninety-five percent male, and and so we knew women were gigantic readers. They were an audience that we wanted, but we really didn't capture them until we came out with Dragonlance. And in Dragonlance, some of the main characters are female, and so that that told the the lady readers of the novels of the Dragonlance novels that they could play a game where they're a big deal. And so, and so they started joining in in a big batch. So now I think, you know, I think now it's probably 60, 40, 40 being female um, players of the game, which was okay. good for TSR. Dragonlance sold great just because it sold to a lot of ladies as well. Okay. That's a, that's a good strategy. 
So is what is it that makes something really compatible or ideal for translating into a gaming space? Oh, I read this question and said, man, this is going to be really hard to answer. I know, but you read it ahead of time, so you had prep time, right? I mean, one of the things is is a lot of source material. Okay, so so TSR did this very well. So we have we have AD&D, and we have AD&D novels, and we have AD&D adventures, and we have AD&D pick-a-path books, and AD&D catacomb books. In other words, we did a lot of different AD&D things, um, and especially the novels, people got how to play the game by reading the novels. They, they understood it better because they read the Dragonlance, Dragonlance War series, and, and that's another thing in Giantlands. Yeah, isn't she cute? That's a, that's Larry Elmore's wife, by the way. Larry Elmore does females, and they all look like her. They all look like his wife, who's his very wife attractive. Gorgeous. Yeah, her wife, I was actually, his wife is gorgeous. She's going to make infantry jokes. I was actually looking at the gun. Oh, I, <laughs> I'm to, sorry. To show the joke, the, the well, gun. you know, in the infantry, they spend more time sleeping with their guns than they do any gender. Which is tragic beyond belief, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> The, the art is just it, it'll it'll suck you in. You just you could tell a story just looking at the pictures. You really can. You, you really, really can. He does that. Yeah, he, and actually, Je- Jeff Easley and Clyde Caldwell and Keith Parkinson, they were all amazing artists, far ahead of their times. I um, mean, TSR was lucky to have them as his main artists. We we really raised the quality of of hobby products with our art. Um, and it was it was fantastic and really good and and everybody started copying us, which which was expensive for them. Yeah, I mean the art is amazing. Yeah, so, I quite agree. Go ahead, Doc. Uh, I was going to ask, how do you uh, work with some of these amazing things without creating spoilers? So, for instance, you mentioned you worked with Firefly and some of the other like existing IPs that you uh-huh. have to translate into a game. How yes. do you translate existing intellectual properties, books and movies and such, into games without giving spoilers when you're making the, the game itself? Oh, well, you <laughs> – so the important part, and this is what, what every single company – like we did, uh, we did Marvel comic books. And the important part is you don't do their storyline. So in, in the Firefly role-playing game, while you were able to – talk to those characters while they were available on their ship and on planets. You never did their storyline. You never did the stories they were doing. We did the Conan game. We did the Indiana Jones game. We never did those storylines. We did our own storylines. We actually went to J.K. Rawlings, TSR. When I say we, I'm always saying TSR. I was there for 20 years, so I can't help myself. But, uh, but you you never do their storylines. We went to J.K. Rowling and said, we'd love to do a Harry Potter role-playing game. And she said, no, because she's she's like the richest woman in England. She didn't need the money. No, I'm the only one who can write Harry Potter stuff. Oh, okay. We went to Tolkien, and we said, you know, we'd like to do a, a Lord of the Rings role-playing game. Um, but he asked for such a big amount of money that we had to say no. And then another company paid him the money. So we were quite sad about that. But uh, the important part when you're doing anybody's genre is don't do their storyline. So when I did Firefly, 
I did I did a lost asteroid in the solar system. There's only one solar system in Firefly, and it's got like nine different habitable planets. And so I did a lost asteroid, and you went on the asteroid, and you could go as one of the characters in Firefly. You could go as a uh, as a companion or or a ship captain or or a, a, a ship engineer. You could be any one of the characters that's that's on the Firefly ship, but we didn't do their story, and that's that's the secret, of course, to to getting a, a license um, and and making it work. Um, Conan and we thought that Conan and and Indiana Jones would sell terrifically for us. The problem was everybody wanted to be Conan and everybody wanted to be Indiana Jones, which that just didn't work for us. We couldn't sell games like that. So you just have to watch out for that kind of thing. There, I mean, they did a Tarzan role playing game. Everybody wanted to be Tarzan. <laughs> so it's it's a problem. I mean, Tarzan does have amazing abs. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> And he gets the girl in the end. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I don't have want to the wonder. girl. I just want the abs. Yeah, I always have to wonder why didn't he ever have to shave? <laughs> that was a puzzle. I've been wondering why they think chainmail bikinis work too. So I mean, <laughs> there's all kinds of questions. Yeah, you you pump enough magic into those things and they work just fine. It's called hand wavium, Doc. It's it's the special sauce. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> so. Uh, since you've answered some of the, the existing questions, we've got one more before we, we start the wrap up. So okay. of all the existing IPs that are out there that you haven't written in. So obviously the games aren't, is there any one that you'd love to write a game in? Oh, oh. that's a great question. Let me think. Oh, well, I'd love to do a Lucifer role-playing game. That's on. Uh, yeah. The TV series. I'd love to do that. That's, that would be terrific. I would love to do. What else do I watch on? I'm trying to figure out what else I watch on that channel. Um, Legacy is fun. It's about a bunch of witches. Like <laughs> you like Legacy too, Doc? I think it's fun. Yeah, it is lots of fun. Um, and I, I'm always willing to do a Merlin, a Merlin game. You know, another another King Arthur game. You can't you can't do too many King Arthur games because the genre is so cool. You've got sword, you've got dragons. You know, you've got ladies that need to be saved. Um, so you can't do too many of those. So you see, I've got lots of choices out there. Um, and then, of course, the, all my favorite books. I mean, Robert Heinlein's. I I could do a bang up Robert Heinlein game. Time enough for love or. Uh, Stranger in a Strange Land. Oh my goodness, I could do a wonderful game of that. Or Roger Zelazny's um, big series, any of his books, I could turn into marvelous games. So there's just tons out there that I could do. I just have to find the foolish people to give me the money to do them. <laughs> Understood. So clearly this uh, interview is winding down. Um, but be <laughs> before we wrap this up, was there anything about Giant Lands that we didn't ask that you want to tell us before we before we close? Oh, let's see. Okay, so you can go to giantlands.com to find the game. Um, there's going to be an adventure out. Uh, oh, on Discord, you can find the GL logo, and I answer questions every day on Discord for Giantlands. So if you bought the game and you're having trouble with something, you can reach me on Discord, and I'll answer your questions. No problem. Ooh. All right, yeah. I'll get all those links for... Um for the giant land stuff all of that will be in the show notes as usual we'll even link to the gary con so if you decide to show up and, and try the <laughs> pizza with james uh he said he's not paying for everybody though so don't get your hopes up no just two guys just the two nice people here 
<laughs> All right. So this is the part, dear listener, where we remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. I happen to know the places you buy RPGs, you can review them there too. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, you can start a website and do the reviews or start a YouTube channel and talk about the games. There's any number of followers of various blogs and YouTube and Twitch channels that do nothing but nerd out over this stuff. So you could join the party. There's always room for one more, but review what you use, what you like. It helps other people find products. So so do your part, people. And, and James will will send you a, a digital hug on Discord if you if you leave a review. Well thank you uh, very much. So so James, how can listeners uh, and viewers find you? Oh boy, that's hard to do. I, I have a Patreon page. That's kind of cool. James M. Ward. Um, and I'm on Facebook every day, and uh, that's about it. I'm kind of a – I mean, if you contact Troll Lords or Goodman Games, they'll contact me too. Okay, and I'll have all those links in the show note. He is sort of uh, – much like me, he's a digital troglodyte, and we just we just don't like the interwebs. Yeah. So – uh, one day, one day we'll come to the 20th century, and and maybe we'll catch up with Doc in the 21st eventually. I don't know; it could happen. But, uh, my uh, computer, my computer is so old it types in pencil. <laughs> so, so do you remember MySpace, where Tom was your first friend? <laughs> yes, of course. All right, so you can find us, dear listener, at Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email the show for real this time at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Uh, Doc mostly answers those questions, so please be nice. She's been known to stab people. Um, you can join us on Facebook where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and plays podcast if you have any questions about the episode you post them in the comments on the the day we post this episode and i will pester jim i will give him a call and be like jim you need to answer these questions and so you can you can have a brief conversation with james he wants to your money so buy his stuff uh you can join us uh on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month uh, you help us keep the light on and defray the overhead. Uh, you could also support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. I promise that if you uh, put it in the comment section for the podcast, I will keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly caffeinated. They will drink until their heart explodes. Uh, yeah, that's not happening. I don't think there's that much caffeine in the world. Probably might not, be surprised. but we decided not to do only liquor jokes, so we didn't want people to think we got a problem. There so we I'm go. Trying to mix it up a little bit, Doc. We do have a problem, but we love you anyways. <laughs> That's a little far for me. I like him, but I don't love him. <laughs> I told his mom I'd be a little nicer to him. That's wise. It, it's bad, James. His mom, mom is amazing. Better. She likes her better than she likes me. I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah, I, I'm fine. afraid of his mother, so... That's fine. My mom likes you better than she likes me, so we're all good. Yeah. All right, Doc, bring it home. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and JR, I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blaze podcast. We'll be back next week, same time, indulging our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and, of course, all things that go boom, as well as making JR squirm.